There you go. Get used to this thing. Well, thank you, Lord. Lord, we just really bless you, Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you. But Lord, you are really wanting to do something in our lives, Lord. We really appreciate that. Lord, we just ask you to have your way, Lord. Just speak to us, Lord. Let your word be a wellspring in our hearts, God, that just bubbles up. And something that we don't just hear, Lord, but something that really takes hold of us and grips us, Lord. Grips us. Lord, you said that we could all hear your voice. And, Lord, I just pray for every person in this room that we would all hear your voice, not just through somebody else, but through our own personal relationship with you, that we would hear you talk to us, Jesus. Because I believe you're talking today, Lord. And, Lord, teach us how to hear you in a greater way. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody say amen. Don't be getting... All right, open your Bible to Malachi. And I just want to read Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. There's some interesting human beings. <laughs> um, Malachi 4. I'm going to read verse 1. I lied to you. That's the only bad thing about this. Is you have to change things occasionally, but... Let me just start at verse 1. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, that's us. If it's not you, it needs to become you. The son of righteousness, because look at what happened to the ones who are not in this group. Getting burned up. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in His wings. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you, Lord. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Anybody know what a stall-fed calf looks like? I don't really know. I've never seen a stall-fed calf, but it's got to be something good, right? Veal? That's veal. Mm. <laughs> you shall trample the wicked... For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on, that, on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb with all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Least I come and strike the earth with a curse. Amen? So, the great day of the Lord, everybody knows that's when Jesus came as Savior, right? That's a great day. That was a great day on the earth. That's when Jesus came as Savior. But here it mentions another day. mentions a dreadful day. Uh, in, in fact, verse 1, verse, that's why I wanted to read verse 1. Verse 1 is talking about that dreadful day, uh, the day when uh, it's coming burning like an oven, when the Lord begins to bring judgment in the earth. Um, and, you know, the Lord is going to bring judgment. And I believe that, you know, in the last, you know, the last days, the Bible really teaches us that there will be perilous times that come upon the face of the earth. Um, so it's two days that they're talking about here, I, what I see, two specific time periods when, you know, the Lord pours out the spirit of Elijah on the earth. One uh, was when Christ came as Savior. 
Um, and one, I believe, is now when God is beginning to pour out this anointing in the earth that He really desires, you know, to begin to operate in our lives now. Just like the Lord poured that thing out now earlier, you know, in life. And so, so the question is, what does this practically mean for us as people? Okay, what does, you know, when you read about the spirit of Elijah, what, what in the world are you talking about, Lord? Because you'll find it really doesn't, some of the things in the Bible don't add up. Turn to Matthew 17. And what I want to do is just tell you what one of the things that I feel like it means for us on a practical level, the spirit of Elijah. Because I believe God wants to pour out the spirit of Elijah on us. I really do, just like he poured it out uh, previously. Uh, Matthew 17, verse 10. This is right. This is the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. It's interesting that they had the Mount of Transfiguration appearance when, where Moses and Elijah began to appear to the Lord uh, on that mountain. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and they had this pretty powerful experience. When it was over with, this, I thought this was interesting. This is what the disciples asked Jesus. This first thing to ask him, and I don't, I'm thinking, would I have asked Jesus that question if I'd have been on that mountain and, had, and saw what they saw and heard what they heard? And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they had that question. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was really that one that the Lord poured out the spirit of Elijah on for the coming of Christ as Savior to the world. Now, here's the thing that really, that I think we need to ask the question is, why Elijah? Why John the Baptist? Because if you look at John the Baptist's ministry and compare John the Baptist's ministry with Elijah's ministries, they are not equivalent ministries, Okay. Uh, John the Baptist absolutely never did one miracle. There's no miracle that he did in the New Testament. Yet, that's all Elijah was really all about. He was all about doing miracles. He was all about calling fire down from heaven. You know, he was all about parting uh, the Jordan rivers. Do you see the discrepancies there, uh, the uh, surface discrepancies? When, when we say, Lord's, the Lord's going to pour out the spirit of Elijah, man, the first thing I'm thinking is, is miracles. I'm thinking power, right? I mean, that's logical thinking. But John the Baptist gets, gets this anointed on him, and he does not even do a miracle. The Bible is full of things like that are pu- that are puzzling thoughts uh, to the natural man. Uh, you know, John the Baptist, he was a preacher. That's what he did. He preached repentance. Over and over and over and over. That's, that was his ministry, his preaching repentance. So there's not a, you know, an equivalency. It doesn't appear, at least. Now turn to Second Kings. Y'all with me? We're talking about what does this practically mean to us. Second Kings, I want to read um, this little story that we've, you know, that everybody's real familiar with. It's when, you know, Elijah was taken up to heaven. Second Kings, verse 8. I'm second Kings two. I'm sorry. Second Kings two, verse eight. Are y'all okay out there? Good. It says now Elijah. Second Kings chapter two, verse eight. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that two of them crossed over in the dry ground. 
And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what may I do for you before I am taken away from you. Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again because I love this. You look at pictures of this event, and they always show a little Elijah thrown up there on that chariot of fire. And that's not what the Bible says. You know, he says he was taken up in the whirlwind. And you see, I guess the thing that I really see in the Bible, there's lots of things that people assume are the truth in the Bible which are not in the Bible. You hear what I'm saying to you? In, in other words, when we read the Bible, we need to be asking the Lord to show us what it's really saying instead of what we thought it was saying or some picture we heard or, or it's even been preached that way. It's not the truth. He was taken up by a whirlwind. That's what the Bible says. Not what those, those pictures or whatever has been preached was wrong. Period. And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took a hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. Now think about it for a minute. I don't know how much of the clothes he tore into pieces. It doesn't really tell us. But it sounds like to me the guy just stripped down naked and <laughs> ripped all his clothes off. Sounds like a pretty crazy guy, right? Elisha. Yeah, he was crazy. You know, but he was pretty powerfully crazy. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. There's that spirit, okay? Spirit of Elijah the Lord wants to pour out, was resting on Elisha, and they came to him and bowed to the ground before him. Now, here's another little tidbit. The Elijah, and I think I've said this before, I think it's really important. Elijah said, if you can see me when I'm taken up, okay? If you can see me when I'm taken up, you'll get your request. Suddenly, this, these horses of fire come, and that would have been a pretty severe distraction, right? I mean, if you saw horses of fire come wimbling down from heaven, okay, what would you be looking at? Would you be paying attention to what old Elijah was doing? Probably not. I mean, honestly. I mean, I don't think I would. I'd be like, whoa, you know, horses of fire. I would have been all focused on that. And it was between him and uh, the horses of fire were between Elijah and Elisha. And all of a sudden, this whirlwind just takes Elijah up to heaven. And that's what Elisha had to do is he had to keep his eyes on Elijah to get this anointing on him. So... I think we can be distracted real easy. You hear what I'm saying to you? By really wonderful supernatural things. Uh, but if the Lord is wanting you to put your focus on Him, maybe, or, or something, whatever He says, we could miss, you know, what God is doing. We could miss God in the middle of God moving. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing for God to be moving powerfully and we put our eyes on the wrong thing. I'm not talking about a sinful thing. I'm not talking about bad things. Maybe it's what God's doing at that moment. We've got our eyes on it. We don't have our eyes on what God said to have His eyes on. And we miss the very thing that God wants to release to us. Wouldn't that be an awful, awful thing? And I think it happens a lot of times uh, to people. So we've got to be careful about distractions, uh, you know, that happen. But this is what I wanted to bring out to you. 
in particular, Elisha, when he saw Elijah being taken up, okay, when he, when he cried out to him, and as, you know, as we just read, he cried out to him, uh, he didn't cry out to him, my prophet, my prophet, okay? He cried out to him, my father, my father, okay? And remember what I just read to you, that the Lord was going to pour out the spirit of Elijah on the earth, and he was wanting part of the outcome of that outpouring was this restoration process between generations of people, that God wants to restore generations back together, because there's always a generation gap, and, and we see Elisha actually look to Elijah as a father, as a spiritual father. And so when Elijah was being taken, Elisha was crying out to his spiritual father, and, and, but he wasn't crying out to him as a, as a miracle man, as a prophet. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you all with me on that? So I believe one, one thing about the spirit of Elijah that God wants to make real to us is about relationships. Okay? I think that's really an important aspect of God's kingdom is relationships. And I think it's something that we miss over and over and over because it may not be like the chariots of fire. It may not be like the power side of it. And that's another part. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want us to get something from the Lord this morning about relationships. That relationships are really critical in God's kingdom. Relationships are really what makes the kingdom of God really operational. Are you all with me? And if, when we, when we uh, miss it or when we step across, or away from relationships, we ultimately we will walk away from the very essence of what the gospel is all about. You hear what I'm saying to you? And we'll miss the very power of God because God is into relationships. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians. Are you all with me so far? This is one of the things it practically means to us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. See, you know, honestly, the more I become, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize how important relationships are. And when you get out in a relationship, when a relationship's broken, when a relationship's messed up, guess what happens? You're broken and you wind up being messed up. And God's flow in your life starts getting turned off. You know, so from a, just an experience standpoint. But let's read 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4 through 7. This is Paul talking to these guys, uh, to the church at Corinth. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given to you by Christ Jesus. That's a great verse, isn't it? He was thanking them for grace that was on them. That you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift. I mean, this is, we're talking about some gifted human beings here. They came short in no gift. Think about it, all the gifts of God, and these guys had all the gifts of God operational in their life. Yeah, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they were really, a, and from a gifted standpoint, they were really a powerful church. Yet, yet... Think about the book of Corinthians. Think about how whacked they were. They were a messed up bunch of people. They were a messed up bunch of Christians. There was division in that church like you wouldn't believe. So much so that people were suing each other. Suing, you know, like, okay, I'm suing Doug Murdoch because he did something to me, so I'm taking him to the court. That's what was going on on a regular basis in that church. Here's another thing. You're talking about sexual immorality? Guess what they had in that church? They had incest going on in that church. You know, 
we think we got it bad. They were, they were, perver- they were pretty perverted uh, as a church. They were having, you know, they had these fellowship meals where they would come together and, you know, fellowship meals like we do. We had ice cream. Well, they'd do communion at these things. They were getting loaded at church. I'm talking about drunk. drunk. They were drunk. You know, not drunk on the Holy Spirit, but drunk, drinking whatever they were drinking back in the day. And then they were doing communion. You know, sloppy drunk. You know, that's just a few of the issues that, uh, that these people had. Yet Paul was saying, yeah, y'all guys are, y'all are, you know, enriched, enriched as, as people. You got it all together, but they were a mess. They were a disaster. Now, turn over to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. Let's read this, and this is the point. So you can be spiritually gifted out the wazoo and be a pervert. That's the point. You know, the Holy Spirit can be moving, and you can be in, you know, having an adulterous affair. And that has happened. But here's what Paul was saying to these guys. This is, you know, this is the issue, 14, 4, 14. He said, I do not write these things to shame you. See, he was admonishing them. He was going after them for their mess. But as my beloved children, I warn you. He was warning them. Listen, y'all better get it together. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So Paul was saying, the reason you're messed up is not because you lack gifts. It's not because you haven't been taught well, because obviously they were taught very well. They were taught by Paul. They were taught by Paulus. They were taught by Peter. He, they, it mentions those people, you know, because everybody was dividing around these, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm, you know, I'm of Apollo, so on and so forth. So they were obviously well taught. I mean, let's say, these are people who are writing the Bible, you know, Paul and Peter. And Apollos was, the Bible says Apollos, he was mighty in Scripture. So here's their teachers. Wouldn't we be glad to have those teachers today? I mean, it'd be awesome. But they were messed up, and Paul was saying, this is why you are a bunch of perverts. It's because you don't have real spiritual relationships in your life. You're going to church, you're listening to good teaching, but you're getting drunk at church. Your people are having affairs in your church. Y'all are suing each other. And it's because there's a lack of true relationships. True relationships, not fake relationships. Real relationship. Christianity is a relationship. We've got to get that. It's not a program. It's not a spectator sports. It's, it's built on relationships. And that's why the, the church at Corinth was messed up. is because they wasn't walking in relationships with each other. And look what happens to us when it, when it goes that way. Moving on. Let me tell you this story. This is a very interesting story. Anybody heard of William Rasp? Everybody say, Rasp. Raspberry. He's like a syndicated columnist, and he works for the Washington Post. And he wrote an article about relationships, okay? And what he was talking about in his article, he was talking about inner-city youth, okay? He was talking about all the drugs and all the violence that, black, that the black kids have in the inner city. This, this Raspberry is a black man. Pretty pretty controversial guy, actually, if you read some of his stuff. He's got some, some pretty, pretty extreme political views. But, but he wrote this one article, and, and the article was about this. It was about white rhinos, okay, in this uh, park 
Hollingsburg Park. It's a game preserve in South Africa. All right, this is what was going on with these white rhinos. These white rhinos, which are sort of a rare breed of rhinos, started coming up dead. They started finding them in this park dead. And, of course, at first they thought poachers were getting them, you know, trying to get their horn and, I guess, their skin, whatever, you know, if it was a white rhino. Hey, I've never seen a white rhino. Have you, Marlon? <laughs> you have. Marlon has. Marlon's a black rhino, by the way. <laughs> He's not white. Anyways... <laughs> Anyways, they immediately, that's for people who are colorblind, not for Marlon's sake. He knows he's a black rhino. He knows I'm a white rhino, so. <laughs> Anyways, they immediately thought, you know, they thought it was poachers at first, and then they realized with a horn, none of that stuff was missing, so they were, it was puzzling. So what they did is they set up remote video cameras in this park to, to you know, at different places strategically, to, you know, to watch what was going on. And what they discovered is these young bull elephants, were chasing these rhinos. They would run them for miles and miles and miles and miles. And the rhinos would finally get exhausted and just fall over. And then these young bull elephants would start picking up rocks with their trunk. I didn't know elephants could do that, really. And started throwing these things at them. And, and you know, and throwing trees at them. Because an elephant can knock a tree down. He can just... I've seen trees where elephants just walk right through the tree. Just knocked them down and just kept going. When we was over there in Africa, they had one elephant... They had this elephant in a pen that was made out of light pole or power poles. That's what it was made out of. And the guy said, we said, can that pen keep that elephant contained? They said, no. If he wants, he can just walk right through that. So he'll knock it right down. The only reason he stays is because there's a nice bed in there and there's food in there for him. He, but you could see the trees were, that they would knock down. If they happened to be in the way, they would just run right over these trees. These are very powerful animals. And uh, they were these these young bull elephants were killing these white rhinos, and the people couldn't understand why why are they doing this? And so they went back and began to research the history of elephants in this park, and they discovered twenty something years earlier they had had an overpopulation of elephants in this park. And what they did to solve the problem is they took all the older male elephants and shipped them out. And just left a bunch of young elephants there. And without the influence of the older male elephants, these young male elephants went wild. And what Raspberry was trying to bring out in his article, that's what's the problem in the inner city, is all the older males have left the place. They've deserted the young people, and they've gone wild. They've gone And Paul, that's what he was saying about the church at Corinth. They didn't have these, they had teachers. They had preachers, but they didn't have these relational things set up in their life, and the young ones were just going wild. And what they did, they went and got some of them old elephants, brought them back into the park, and immediately the young males stopped doing all this when the old males got a hold of them because the old males were able to, you know, bring them into submission. And that's a great point of what has happened. That's a point of what happened in the Corinthian church. That, to me, is what's going on in the church today in America. Is that we have replaced, we've replaced relationships with programs. That's what we've done. And we wonder why are the young people deserting the church? Why do young people hate church? You know, it's because we don't have these relationships. And I believe it. Yeah. Well, it can be more than that, but this is part of it. So in the absence of relationship, the church has replaced kingdom life with programs. That's what we've done. We've replaced kingdom life with programs. 
You understand what I'm saying? That's what we've done. Kingdom life is a relational thing, but we have turned it into a program. And it's not good. Now, programs are not wrong in themselves, but here's where a program goes wrong, when it becomes a substitute. And when it becomes a substitute, it becomes the devil's counterfeit. And that's really what's happening. It has become the devil's counterfeit for true kingdom living. Are you all with me on that? And I really believe this is what's going on in in the church world. We have this, what I call, in my mind, a look-alike phenomenon. Well, it looks like discipleship. It looks like discipleship, but it's just a program. Uh, oh, it looks like missions. It's just a missions program. See, that is not really the kingdom of God. We don't find that nowhere in the Bible they had a missions program. Well, we don't support these missionaries. We don't ever talk to them. We don't have a relationship with them. We don't know what they're doing. Well, it's not like they're doing a good thing. Let's send them 50 bucks. That is not kingdom. That's not, that's a program. Are you all with me? So the spirit of Elijah, number one, is about relationship. Here's another thing. Spirit of Elijah is also about power. Okay? It's about power. Let's look down in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 4. Same, same chapter, Paul was just admonishing them about spiritual relationships. Then he starts talking about power. He says, well, the kingdom of God is not word but in power. Okay? So you can't deny the supernatural aspect. All right, this is something I believe. You ever seen or heard about the Harry Potter stuff? I know there's actually Christians who think it's all right. But I, I feel like this. This is what I believe about Harry Potter stuff. Because, you know, kids are crazy about that stuff. Children are. I believe it's, it's the Lord's trying to give a message to the church through all the, you know, how popular that stuff is. Uh, and, and number one, I believe it's, it's an indication that there is a genuine hunger in, in, the, in the human race for supernatural things. There's a hunger. God has, and it's a God hunger. It's a good hunger. So don't ever deny that hunger in your heart for something supernatural. Don't let religion tell you, well, you shouldn't be, you know, focusing on, on supernatural. You should be. It's, it's God-given because God is supernatural. Right? So that hunger is a wonderful gift from God. But I believe about the Harry Potter and that children are a target of the enemy. I think our children are a target of the enemy. Because I believe, this, I'm just telling you what I believe here. I can't justify this on any, any level biblically. But I believe the children, the young ones, are going to be the ones who are really going to walk in the supernatural power of God. And I believe the enemy is seeing this, and he's going after them. You hear what I'm saying? He's going after them. He's giving them a supernatural thing. That stuff's real. I mean, you know, the devil's got power. He's the supernatural power. It's, it's the bad power. It's the wrong power. But he's going after the kids because he sees God has something for these children. He sees there's a call on that generation that's going to really be supernatural. And I promise you, probably by the time these children that we see run around here, they get up and they take over the church, the church won't be like it is today. They're not going to put up with it. Yeah. Praise God. I mean, it's the truth. I think Satan's attempting to draw them into the occult and witchcraft. You hear what I'm saying? And I believe this. I believe if we don't start walking in the supernatural power of God, we are risking. We're risking giving our children over to that. We really are. And that should be a wake-up call to every parent and soon-to-be grandparent in this room. Because I'm thinking about one of these days I'm going to have grandkids, and I am not going to be sitting around making this risk in them to really get involved in the occult and witchcraft. 
And the only way I know to do it is I need to start walking in the supernatural power of God. Amen. You hear what I'm saying? It really, it gets real serious when you start thinking about your kids. It gets, real, it gets dog serious. You mess with somebody's kids and they'll kill you over it. And you can understand why. And we, we need to understand that Satan is messing with our children. He's messing with our children. So I believe the Lord is asking us a question. Okay? And that's the question. Will, be, will, will we be those people? Will we be the people? Will we be the people who walk in kingdom relationships? And will we be the people who walk in supernatural relationships? So who said that? <laughs> yeah. Now, I believe God has an offer on the table for us, okay? I really believe there's a, 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 a long-standing offer. And I don't feel like God's going to take the offer off the table. It's, I don't feel like it's that kind of offer. I feel like He's offered, been offering it to us for a long time. And, and I believe it's still there. It's still there. But, you know, you get so messed up in your life and your heart. But I believe He wants to make us a last day's people who walk in relationship and power. Now, I think you have to have both, you know, because that's what keeps the kingdom, in, you know, that divine, divine tension, truth's intention. You all know what that is? There's a, there's a truth here, there's a truth over here. They don't necessarily look the same. You ever been on a parking deck, high-rise parking deck? You seen those cables that they have? Well, those cables are there. They're important. You start cutting them cables off, that thing, those cables are actually adjustable where they keep that whole building square and keep it from moving because they don't have all the structure a building has. That's why they have those cables there. And that's a good picture of a truth intention. They hold the thing in place the way it's supposed to be. And so there's this relational aspect and tension with this power aspect that keeps the kingdom of God working in our lives and keeps it dynamic in our lives. And I really feel like God is saying, I, I think He's saying it to our church. I really do. I think He's made an offer to our church. And it's saying to us as a corporate people, you know, I have offered the spirit of Elijah to you. I've offered it to you. Now, do you want it? That's the question. Do you want it? You know, it's about being a kingdom people, not just a church people. You hear what I'm saying to you? This is the truth. And I don't want us to...